listening to the City World Radio Network. High Definition Digital Radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com that song was tonight and the message behind it and how fascinating uh, what the, my guest is about to explain to us all. Um, before I introduce her, I just want to quickly explain to you all what you have gotten yourself into if you're new to Morph Mom Moments. And welcome if you are, and welcome back if you're not. My name is Kathleen Smith. Um, I founded Morph Mom about six years ago, and it's M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. And basically with the idea of rather than reinventing the wheel for those of us who don't know where to begin, uh, I went out and interviewed women all over the country who told their stories, women who had gone back to work, women who had never left work, women who had children, women who didn't have children. Some stories applied to careers, entrepreneurial things, writing books, and some were just maybe sharing stories of tragedies that they'd overcome and how they did it and connecting with others out there looking for that connection. So basically, that was the beginning of Morph Mom. It has since morphed over the past six years. Uh, we write for the Huffington Post now and share the stories. We have this radio show, which is so fun. We have classes. We have, a non- we have conferences, which we like to call the non-conference because all are welcome. It doesn't exclude anybody. That, by the way, will be April 24th in New Jersey at the Morse Museum. And if you want to find out more about that, please visit the site. But I promise it's really, really fun with great panels, great speakers, great topics, and most importantly, just great women. Um, so without further ado, I am so excited to welcome not only my friend tonight, who is helping me with the show, Lisa Danini, but our very, very amazing guest, Roseanne Lake. Roseanne is a multilingual European and American journalist. She's been published in the Times, in the Atlantic, just to name a few. She's currently uh, the Cuba correspondent for The Economist. She was previously based in Beijing as a TV reporter and journalist. Uh, during that time, her China coverage uh, appeared in various things, including the, uh, the Atlantic, uh, foreign policy, just to name a few again. But what it really led to, which is why we're here tonight, is to talk about her becoming an author. And the book that she wrote, based upon her experiences and her stories and what she learned, left over in China, The Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower. Basically, it's about the trailblazing females who are now 25 years old and considered leftovers in China. And basically, as a result, not primarily, but as a part of the aftershock of there having been the one-child policy in China. So, Roseanne, we are, Lisa and I are thrilled to have you on tonight. This is so interesting. It's so exciting. And I have to say, because Lisa and I both have daughters in our 20s, 
So it's, it's just a fascinating story. So welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you both for having me and for playing Beyonce as my opening act. I never thought that would happen. <laughs> I never thought she'd open for me. <laughs> I'll have to send her a thank you note. You never know what happens on Morph Mom Moments. <laughs> so, Roseanne, I sort of gave your intro, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up I mean, you know, currently the Cuba correspondent, but sort of your journey and, and how you ended up being this multilingual journalist. And I think, if I'm right, you speak five languages. I do, yes. And, and Chinese was the last one that I added to that, and it was by design. Um, I grew up speaking Spanish because my mom is from Spain, and I studied French and Italian in college because I was interested in romance languages. And it both kind of came pretty easily, and I thought, I want a real linguistic challenge. Um, and Chinese seemed like a pretty good option. So um, I took a sabbatical from my job in New York, thinking I'd go to Beijing for a couple of months and maybe pick up some Chinese and just understand this country that had just hosted the Olympics and seemed like it had just come out on the world stage. Everybody was talking about China. And I had also just, you know, I was a cub reporter. I just graduated. I just got in Miami in journalism. And being a journalist in New York when you're fresh out of grad school isn't very glamorous. So I thought maybe, you know, maybe my chances of getting better bylines would be, would be improved if I was in a more exotic location. So I took off to Beijing, not speaking the language and not knowing anybody. And I got a job as a TV reporter, and more, well, just as importantly, I bought a hot orange electric scooter that I <laughs> proceeded to name Fonda, like the soft drink. <laughs> and Fonda was initially the reason I stayed in China. It's not the reason I stayed five years, those three months morphed into five years, but it really is the reason I stuck around. Because on this little Vespa that essentially was like riding around with all the glamour of Roman holiday, but with the power of like a hedge clipper, because it only went about you know, 20, 20 miles an hour. Um, it was like being at a perpetual outdoor theater. I zip all around Beijing in these gloriously wide bike lanes in a city that's flat as a pancake. Two things that, well, Havana doesn't have because there's tons of potholes everywhere and they can't import bikes, so forget that. And New York doesn't have either because it's, well, there's some hills and the bike lanes aren't really bike lanes. Um, but I got to zip around this city and it was fascinating because, you know, for someone who had gone initially curious about the language, I could hear people on the road frustrated in, tra in traffic screaming at one another. So the first things I picked up were curse words, of course. And slowly, <laughs> I just became smitten by this country. And, and as I picked up the language a little more and more, I started to feel like I was about as conversational as a two-year-old. And it was like, wait a minute, I can't go now. I'm just starting to be able to function. And it was, you know, through that job at the television station that I met um, these so-called leftover women who would later, some of whom would later become the protagonists of my book, but it was all very unexpected. And, and the last thing I, I had planned to do was write a book or even stay that long, much to my mom's dismay. And I'm sorry, you're hearing New York City in the background. <laughs> no worries. So let me go back for a second. So when you said you met the leftovers, so now you're sort of, you're learning, you, you have a basis for the language, you're learning the language as you're going through but when were you first introduced to this idea leftover? And did they, it was a sort of like a self-proclaimed name? Like, did they say this is the leftover culture? Like, how did that, how does that happen? Well, it's funny you ask. It was right around this time of year. Um, Chinese New Year had just started. Had just started. So happy year to dogs, <laughs> incidentally. Um, this happens to be the time of the year when marriage pressures in China reach their absolute zenith. 
because, well, parents are applying a pretty steady layer of marriage pressure throughout the year. Um, it's most acute around Chinese New Year because families are getting together. And the nature of this pressure to get married is socially driven because China, you know, despite being an economic superpower that has evolved very quickly, is still home to a culture that is struggling to recalibrate to a new economic and, and demographic as a result of that one-child policy reality. And so parents are still very traditionally minded, and this idea of marriage being the only way to become an adult still prevails. And so if you're a woman um, over 25 or over 27, you're essentially a burning building because your relatives are thinking, well, you know, they're, they're stuck on this idea that, that 27 is the prime age to have a child and that after that age, it will become increasingly more complicated, which it gets more complicated the older you get. But 27 seems to be a little bit on the conservative side. Right. Um, so through this logic, they just assume that no one on the marriage market is going to want you, that you'll be undesirable. And so you're called a leftover. So really, Chinese New Year is a time to, you know, gather around family tables to enjoy dumplings and, and you know, tables that's doing with fish heads and all of the delicious things that are consumed this time of year. But it's also really a time to cure any singleton that is in your family and, and make every attempt that you possibly can to get them dutifully snuggled into wedlock, whether that means, you know, setting them up on all sorts of awkward blind dates or calling neighbors or, you know, aunties or matchmakers and really just pulling out all the stops to, to see if you can, you know, usher them into a relationship. Were these women, and I don't know if you had the opportunity to speak with the, the leftovers that had to now come home for the big family thing, were they, were they dreading walking into this, like, yeah. how did they feel about it? Like, they must have been like, oh, here it comes. Yes, precisely. I found out about it after the holiday. So I wasn't even aware that this term existed, but it was after the holiday that I noticed my colleagues were in a very different mood that I started to ask around. And one of the superiors said, oh, it's because they're not married. And I thought, what? I'm sorry. Say that again? They're 23, 24. I mean, they actually didn't even hit leftover age. It's just that their parents were already starting. And, and you know, some of them came from um, not quite so major Chinese cities, and so their parents were a bit more traditionally minded. Um, and they explained to me, I said, well, you know, what's this like? And they said, oh, don't worry. We'll be fine in a week or two. We just, you know, we're still licking our wounds from, from the holiday, and, and we'll be okay. But I do know women now, um, you know, especially now that I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in New York, um, I'm meeting Chinese women who were studying here, and they're all very excited because they say, ha, well, the U.S. school calendar, you know, we don't pause for Chinese New Year, so we can't go home because we have to study, and it's great because essentially studying abroad means you miss four series of, you know, Chinese New Year's with your family. But it makes it all the harder to go back because then there's a reality check, and it's not so fun when you get back. But Or they travel. I mean, even women who are living in China now, many of them use this as an opportunity to go Australia on holiday, and it's why tickets are astronomical. <laughs> Anywhere you want to leave from China around the summer of year is very high because people travel, and um, you know that's that's part of their way of, of coping with it. Just kind of staying away, or some of them decide to take their parents on a holiday. Oh, mom, dad, come on, let's let's go to Egypt. Uh, let's forget about this family <laughs> gathering. It'll be okay. Do you? So, with your impression, I, I, the pressure, I can't even imagine what that to be like. Did you feel, so, so almost like, so the parents were carrying this burden, almost it was like their failure, I, I don't know, if their daughters were not married at age, but did you feel like the women, the leftovers, the 25-year-olds, the 27-year-olds, shared that or did not believe that, like as they were now confident in their career path and whatever they were doing, or, do, or did you feel like they too shared a little bit of that angst or that 
leftover feeling. I think it was definitely a blow to their self-esteem around the holidays. Um, but, you know, as I said, they said, oh, give us a week or two, we'll take it off. I mean, overwhelmingly, these women were so inspiring because they were, they were I mean, they were approaching this situation, which is a very unpalatable with a great deal of resolve, right? As, as only daughters, which many of them are, um, they felt the responsibility to be filial because in China, you know, that, that, that's of supreme importance, this respect for your parents. And so they were treading a very fine line between appeasing their parents and maybe going on a blind date here and there um, or pretending that they were signed up on, you know, online websites <laughs> to meet men and then also just dating on their own terms, right? Doing it, doing their own thing. Um, but they did feel the need to sort of check in and appease because they, you know, they were dutiful daughters. And I think many of them understood that, you know, I, I also think from interviewing moms that many of them know that their daughters were going to be just fine. It was just that external pressure from, you know, right. relatives and neighbors and the people that they experienced. And there's a Chinese concept of faith that's, you know, very complex. It's this idea that, you know, the, the way society sees you, you know, from the outside world is very important. And to not have a child married and to not have a grandchild by a certain age to, you know, go go talk to your friends about when you're getting together to do Tai Chi or Qigong or to dance in a park or to sing KTV together, it really is a blow to, you know, to a family's honor in a way. And so, um, you know, the girls were kind of caught up between the two things. But I think they were also managing, many of them were managing to sort of prove their worth to their parents and make it clear to them, like, look, look, there are a lot of things that I'm doing really well. You don't need to worry about me. And actually, who's paying for that vacation to Egypt? It's me. So I'm doing just fine. <laughs> right. You know what I found fascinating? I, mean, I was reading this before that, okay, so they have sort of this much more conservative, traditional view of being married by a certain age and fulfilling this marital role that, you know, that everybody's looking upon. But at the same time, due to this one-child policy, at the time, there turned out to be an enormous gender imbalance. So maybe 20 million more men at the time, and those with daughters, then sort of with only daughters, pushed those daughters to pursue careers like if they had had a son. So the, the daughters, in an economic, uh, uh, you know, professional thing, were pushed and pushed and pushed ahead in a very non-conservative way, as opposed to the way socially they were being raised. So that dichotomy is fascinating to me that. Traditionally, they should be, you know, fulfilling sort of like an old, an old thing that you need to be married, you need to have kids. But then they were so advanced as far as the, you know, having a woman excel in all other realms. Right, seeking education, mm -hmm. seeking professional employment, all that. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, from um, from when they were younger, um, as only daughters, as China's first generations of only daughters in families where, you know, parents were open-minded to keep a daughter because a lot of them, you know, disposed of their daughters. Um, that's why you have this gender balance. That's why you have so many boys and girls. Um, you know, girls raised in these families were treated as sons because they didn't have brothers. And their parents said, all right, well, you're our only heir. We're going to give you every possible resource to become educated and to succeed, and we're going to push you to achieve. And if we own a family business, you're going to inherit it because there's no one else to inherit it. Um, and they did that because, you know, that's what they wanted for their only child. But that is these daughters, and, and it would be true to the extent where some, many would say, you know, um, don't date in college. We need you to focus on studying and on your career. And then suddenly after graduation, it was like, are you married yet? And, and the frenzy kicks in. And it's kind of then when, you know, parents make this realization like, oh, she really is a daughter. We need her to scale back. We need her, you know, to, to, to be our daughter again and, and to get married and to tick these boxes. And 
many of the women that I spoke with, you know, kind of felt cheated in that regard. Because again, going back to this idea of being a dutiful daughter and a filial daughter, they listened to their parents. Their parents encouraged them to achieve and to study hard, and they did, because they did it because they wanted to make their parents proud. And nobody realized that it would really eclipse their value on the marriage market when, when they became older, but that is effectively what's happening. Well, it also raises the bar for what type of husband she will accept, and they would probably also accept, given that they've invested so much in their daughters. It absolutely does, and some pretty wild things are happening as a result. Um, I spoke to a woman who is an only daughter. She was born in Shanghai. She was born to parents who didn't really have the chance to raise her because they had their own business, and they needed to work really, really hard. Um, she's about 28 years old now, I believe. 29, actually. She's right on the cusp of 30, which is driving her parents bonkers. And she's just split up with her partner. So they're really going up this time this year. Um, but uh, she's from a well-to-do family, and they expect her to marry an equally well-to-do guy. And this is true to the extent that because they own property in Shanghai, they expect, which is a major city, right? They expect her partner to own property in a major city. And now, since you can have two children in China, there's a two-child policy as of, as of 2015, they expect her to have two children because they want their own designated grandchild. They feel that they're bringing so much to the relationship that they need a grandchild that they can spoil and swaddle, but they also want this grandchild to take their last name. So they expect her to have two children with two different last names because their feeling is, well, we brought so much to 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 wealth to to you know to the partnership that we deserve an equal share of it. And you know she's not really even convinced she wants to have any children. So this is coming as as quite you know big news to her. Um, but it's something that we're starting to see because and, and it it stems from the fact that in China, oh, so, that, mm, so that they would they would she would have one child that would pass down her parents' name. Her father's. Right. Exactly. One for each side of the family. Got one child with that name, and they each have a descending line with that name. Yes. And it stems from the idea that um, paternal grandparents are always considered more important in China. And actually, you don't just say grandma and grandpa for both for your maternal and your paternal, uh, paternal parents. They have different names. So your grandparents on your mother's side are your why, your external grandparents. And so they're, they're a little bit further down on, on the food chain. Um, so the idea would be that, you know, this raises them up, right? Each, each family can have um, a designated grandchild, which is, you know, oh. a pretty wacky idea. That is wow. fascinating. This is, it's funny, I mean, it's oddly saying I'm one of four girls. So Ooh, I think I've lost you. Oh, Hello? can you hear us now? Um, a little louder. Oh, can you hear us now, Roseanne? Is that better? Uh, yes. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm one of four girls, and my our name ended with the four. Like we were the last ones because my 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 uncle did not have children, and my aunt had took on a different name. So the name ended with four girls, and it was a really hard thing to lose. Like for my dad to lose that name. That is so interesting that they do that. It's something they're trying to do. I mean, it's not widespread yet, but it's definitely something they're trying to do. And it kind of illustrates that, you know, relationships in China are not really between two individuals. They're, they're very much um, between two families, and parents have a say in all of it, from your mate to, you know, strong recommendations for how many children you should have. It's actually gotten extreme to the point where I have a friend in New York 
who just had a baby and um, her first, a son. And her father said, you need to have three children because you live in the U.S. And now anyone in China can have two. You can do better than that. I just kind of oh, looked at him like, God, you're insane. Never end. No, no, it doesn't end. <laughs> she got through the marriage stress, okay? She got through the stress of having a first child. She's got to have two more for them to leave her alone. <laughs> now, how do they feel about women? So you had this only daughter, you had this child, this only daughter, and you pushed her educationally wise, and you pushed her and you pushed her, and she's done really well. And let's see, she, she's not a leftover. She gets married, and she has a child. How do they feel about that woman returning to her career. So the career meant a lot to her. And I know she's young at the time, but are, can these women then go back to their career? Or what happens then? They can. And in many families, it's an economic necessity. I mean, China really has something going for it in the sense that, you know, women work. There's, there's a high percentage of women involved in the workforce. And that's part of, I mean, those are revenants from the Cultural Revolution, right? When in order to meet those nation-building goals, it was like, we don't care if you're a man or if you're a woman. We need all hands on deck to accomplish our, our mission here. And so we need everyone in the workforce. Um, and, and so, you know, women can go back to work. It's, it's pretty much an economic necessity these days. Um, but what does seem to happen in some cases is, you know, one nice thing that Chinese women have going for them is built-in health care, uh, built-in baby care, right? Grandparents are so keen to, to have a grandchild that they essentially, you know, end up taking care of this grandchild full-time. And I, I know a lot of new moms who have sort of gotten into wars with their, their in-laws, usually their, their husband's parents, because those are the ones that move in and sort of take over, um, over, you know, practices on how to, how to raise a child. Like, I, I did a piece, I don't mention as much in the book, but I did a piece on Yezu, which is a traditional Chinese practice of sitting the month. And it means that 30 days after giving birth, you a woman needs to stay at home. She can't go outside. She isn't supposed to shower. She's supposed to brush her teeth with not a toothbrush, but a, uh, a cotton swab. Um, she can't wash her hair. I mean, they're just she she can't eat anything cold. All her fruit needs to be boiled. I mean, I'm talking about the most sort of um, archaic definitions of yuzu, but this is what. Chinese mothers-in-law will will hold their daughters-in-law too. I mean, this is a practice that is believed to have medicinal purposes um, because your joints, there's more space between them after you give birth. And so if you catch a cold by having a shower or going outside, it's, it's believed to lead to arthritis and, and all sorts of illnesses later in life. And so this is very much enforced. And, of course, a lot of modern women have a hard time, especially after having a baby, not taking a shower for 30 days, right? So <laughs> these fats kind of start. And one one sort of ridiculous thing that um, a friend who was a new mom had to deal with was the fact that her mother-in-law was having her baby boy sleep on a hard pillow. Um, and this is because a, a baby's head is very malleable when it's, when it's first born, as you know, and she thought that it was more aesthetically pleasing for the baby to have a flat head. And so she was having the baby sleep on a hard pillow. And the mom was like, I don't want his head to be shaped like a cheese grater. Can we please put him on a normal pillow? And, I mean, this is the stuff that they get into. I mean, it, it, that's obviously an extreme example, but it goes to show the extent to which in-laws are involved, and, and they have a say over this. And, again, I guess going back to that social versus professional, like these women probably, you know, are coming off some corporate, like high corporate-level positions, but socially, I guess when it comes to this, they they bow down sort of, in, I guess, and... and 
And yes, these old traditional ways. Yes, I mean there's there's a saying in Chinese, Nanju Wai, Nuju meaning the man exists in the outside world and the woman exists in the inside world. And you know, even though a woman can now now works outside, um, her her you know her primary duty is to the home. And and you have the, I mean, I've argued that it doesn't this idea of fitting the month doesn't really set you up very well for that because you know if you've just had a baby and you and your mother in law are the main caretakers of it, where's your husband's role? Right? If he's not involved in, in the child's life from an early time on, what kind of precedent are you setting for child care going forward? And, of course, you know, there are dads who pitch in more than others, as is true all over the world. But traditionally, it really is believed that, you know, this is your domain. And a lot of times when parents are, you know, um, critiquing their son's potential mate choices, they want to make sure that a woman is um, on trend, that she's safe, right, that she's not too worldly, um, that she's not working too many long hours to make sure that, you know, her main focus will will be on the home and on the kids and, you know, on, on, on building a, a stable family life. So it is tricky. I mean, you know, women work and, and they do have that wonderful advantage of, of grandparents that will take care of children, sometimes at a distance, right? Um, a young woman and her husband might live in a big city and they might leave their child behind with their grandparents somewhere else because, they, you know, in their hometown because they can't all afford to live in the same place or a residency permit doesn't allow them all to live in one place. But, um, you know, they, so they, they do pitch in, but it, it comes at a cost of having a strong say over how to raise your child. So Lisa and I were talking about this before. So as I said, we both have daughters in their 20s. And how here, you know, you're sort of career-driven, and, and it, you're not really considered, I don't know, the leftover is really the term. No. You know, by the time you get 40, you, know, you may start to be concerned. But you really are pretty much, if you're on track, like your partner or whatever it is you're doing, you're, you're, you're pretty set on that trail. When these women, so not the leftovers, but those who do have these children at 25 and 27 who had had careers beforehand, is it easy for them to come back in at the position or the level that they were before they left? Like, how does that work? Like, here it's difficult. The concern is once you leave, it's difficult to come back in. You know, having stayed home with your kids for however the length of time, it's difficult to come back in at that level or the position that you were at. Is that true in China as well? Like, is that a concern for some of these women? Of course, it definitely is. Um, and, you know, I write about other countries in the book because I, I try to draw parallels between other East Asian tiger economies. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned some research in there about Singaporean women, many married ones, who um, may have a child and they decide to abort the next one. They're married and they, they decide to abort the next one because they're worried about the professional costs that it will entail. Um, and this is definitely true in China, and it actually starts even before you leave the workforce to have children. Um, it starts when you're applying for jobs as an unmarried childless woman, actually, because in China, it's required that you um, put on your resume your marital status. And so if employers see, oh, she's unmarried and she has no children, um, you know, when will she get married? That means marriage leave. Okay, that also means marriage leave for men, so it's not such a big deal, but, you know, when she has her first child, that means more marriage. Leave. And now that she can have a second child, that means even more, sorry, a child leave, that means even more child leave. And so it just kind of adds another layer of discrimination that women face in the workforce that makes it harder. Um, and, you know, it, the, the terms are not, the maternity leave terms are not generous. <laughs> They're not really generous.
live enough in, in anywhere in the world. Um, so it, it certainly does make it harder. I mean, it is a concern that, you know, you can derail your career if you take off even just, you know, six, seven months um, to look after a child. And you don't have to because you have, you know, parents who may be willing to do that for you. But, of course, there's certainly moms who want to do that as just part of enjoying being a new mom. In the workforce, you know, they go around and say how many women have hit, like, high corporate levels. Are there many women in China that have achieved these high, you know, CEO-level positions or, or whatever, you know, have gone far in their careers? So I know socially it's more traditional, but as far as the workplace, how, how are women... Is it more in yeah. private, like in, in family businesses where there's... Where, where the daughters will take over those businesses, or is it also in the corporate? You see you see a bit of both. I mean, you know, China's home to the largest percentage of self-made female billionaires per capita in the world. Uh, that's a very big deal. And a lot of that comes from that history, you know, sort of as we talked about earlier, of having women involved in the workforce um, from an early time, right, from the days of the Cultural Revolution. It's tricky because on the one hand, you know, you do see women in stratospheric levels of finance, um, in the venture capital space, that seems especially true. Um, you know, you see partners at VC firms. It's, it's, it's an active space for Chinese women, and, and they are moving big dollars. Um, but it does get a little bit tricky when it comes to managing a relationship. I mean, I was talking to um, someone who, you know, works at a large financial firm, and we were we were chatting about um, Indira Noyi, who had been, you know, speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and she was telling a story about, you know, the day that she was promoted um, CEO of Pepsi, and she got home, and I believe it was her mother who was berating her for not having come home with milk, something along those lines. And, you know, she told her the news of her big promotion, and her mom said, or mother or mother-in-law, I can't remember which, um, it's in the book properly. <laughs> um, she said, I don't care what you are. You know, when you, uh, the second you pull into this garage, you're the wife and you're the mother, and so get that milk, right? And I was telling him this story, and he said, in China, we don't have this problem. And I said, oh, you don't? And he said, no, because that woman would already be divorced. And I thought, oh, okay, great. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's <great>. encouraging. <laughs> like, no man is going to tolerate a woman, you know, who's that important. So just forget what's the problem we don't have. It's great. It's terrifying. Oh, I love how frank Chinese men can be sometimes. <laughs> how candid they are. <laughs> so, of all, so you've heard, so how many women, I mean, I don't know if you can count, but Generally speaking, did you interview for the book? I spoke to over 100 for them. I, I needed to get a sense of what this whole leftover equation was like. And because it wasn't my intent to write a book, it kind of just started off as a hobby, right? I, I had colleagues in the situation. I asked them questions about it. And as I wanted to know more and more, they would share their stories with me. And I think it was somehow cathartic to be able to talk about this because it's not something that sort of given the traditional nature of China that you talk with in too, too much detail um, with your friends. And I think because I was a foreigner and because I was coming from New York, they were curious to know, oh, is it really, you know, is it really like Sex in the City? You know, it really, it was an exchange. And, and that was a great advantage um, that I, you know, that I benefited from as, as a young reporter. I was their age and, and 
um, I guess there was that affinity, right? We, we could talk about things in that way. It was an exchange more than actual interviews at the beginning. And I don't know, at some point I sort of became the leftover whisperer. I don't, one leftover <laughs> woman would say, hey, he's interested in leftover women's stories. Go talk to her. And then, you know, the word would keep spreading. And so I would meet them. And, and they're really not hard to find. I mean, especially in a place like Beijing, um, there's, a, there's a very dense concentration of leftover women. And so, you know, to get different perspectives on, on what their lives were like. I spoke to many, and then for the book, um, I narrowed it down to four main characters, whose stories I thought were emblematic of, you know, the struggles that they faced, and also the different kinds of leftovers that exist. There are some who, you know, were born from well-to-do families, uh, into well-to-do families, like the colleague I mentioned earlier from Shanghai, um, but others, you know, who were from places a little bit further from the bigger cities and, and from more, you know, average middle-class families um, and who had, you know, they didn't have super-powered jobs. One of the main characters in my book is a Chinese teacher. She doesn't make very much money a month. She she lives in a, a shared housing block with six other girls. Um, and yet, you know, she is a leftover because she is, you know, <laughs> rebuking those advances or those ultimatums to get married. And because ultimately, I, I really feel that being a leftover woman in China is, is a mindset, right? It's, it's A leftover is, is any woman who is secure in her idea of what she thinks will make her happy. And she doesn't cave to pressure to, to get married just because it's time. And she's not willing to marry a complete stranger just because it's time and just to appease her parents. And, and you can do that um, if you're making, you know, <laughs> $30,000 a month or if you're making three. Um, which would be high for China, so maybe different numbers. But uh, the, the salary doesn't really matter. I really think it's, it's a mindset um, that, that leftover women share. And you mentioned something about, or, uh, that I read something about, you were talking about the dating sites, and there was something called Two Red Beans, I think it was, and how there's even, like, familial manipulation of their dating sites or of their apps that trying to, like... like yeah. yeah, so it wasn't Two Red Beans. Two Red Beans is a site um, used by the Chinese diaspora. So if anybody out of China, um, the website that I mentioned was Shijitaiyuan, which is a Chinese website. And yes, it's, <laughs> as I've discovered, it's not uncommon for um, parents, usually Chinese moms, sometimes Chinese dads, to log on and create profiles for their children and, <laughs> and chat on their behalf. Um, and this ends up being really funny because, you know, you have moms saying things on behalf of their daughters that really nobody under the age of 60 would ever say to, to a guy. Um, you know, things like, I want to be your right hand and your left shoulder and then all of this stuff. Um, and, and they set up dates, you know, and then, you know, a girl will get a message saying, four o'clock at this cafe, go show up with this guy. And it's just, it's, it's very funny how involved they are. Um, and it happens to men too. I mean, I have a friend who... I guess on paper is 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 the catch. He's in finance. He makes good money. He's from a good family. He studied abroad. He's bilingual, um, and he's just not ready to settle down. He enjoys his status, and you know he plays the field. And it's it's really time for you to settle down. And he was actually a, a VIP member on this website because he is so considerable, considered such an eligible bachelor. So they gave him a free membership, and he created his um, profile. And his dad edited it. His dad demanded to edit it. Um, to make it more marriage-minded. And he was like, oh, he totally put an end to my hookups. So there's that <laughs> you have to contend with as well. There's a leftover age for women at 25 to 27. Is there a leftover age for men now that you said that? Like, are parents as 
like again, back to when they only had one child, is there the pressure on men to get married by a certain age? There's pressure on men to get married, but not by a certain age. And the only reason that's true is because um, the pressure that women get stems directly from fertility, right? The idea that after 27, your babies are going to come out funky, so you need to have a baby before because no one's going to want you after that. For men, obviously, those, those, those reproductive concerns don't exist, but men still do face a tremendous amount of pressure. It's not so much to do by a certain time, but it's to accumulate a certain amount of wealth. So to be considered, you know, an eligible bachelor, to be in demand as a man, which, remember, there's a huge surplus of them, so men actually need to compete to where they, where they should be competing to attract wives, um, you need to have three things. You need to own a mortgage-free home. You should own a car, which in China is wacky because there's a markup on a lot of the, the imported ones, and getting a license for your car is, is also a very expensive and time-consuming affair. And you need to have cash. Um, and this is what makes you an eligible bachelor. So the pressure to have these three things in order to be able to attract a wife is, is the, the, the side of, of pressure that, that these men face. So for men who have this, who are born into good families, it's not an issue. So like the one I just described, his dad edited his, his profile, he has these things in abundance. He owns that many homes. So this isn't an issue. But for many men in China, um, especially those surplus men who, you know, many of these men were born in, in rural areas where parents were more determined to have a son and, and where they, you know, where sex-selective abortion was used to get rid of the girls, there's a surplus of these men. And if they don't have those three requirements, um, in addition to already it being a very tough market for them, because there aren't many women in these areas where they were born, and of those women born, they were more easily able to leave to other parts of China, because as daughters... As, as sons, these guys were stuck on family farms. They had to look after the families. Daughters could migrate. They could become a masseuse or a KTV host, a karaoke hostess or a, or a waitress. And there they could marry someone, you know, a man of a, of a higher class, right? And in China, it's perfectly okay for a woman to marry up. It's expected. Um, but a man must marry down. And so if, if a man, you know, a man must have more than a woman has. And for these rural men who don't have much at all and who on top of it are in surplus, the pressure is tremendous, and it gets to the point that, you know, parents have to pool together all of their family resources to be able to afford a, a house, um, and sometimes they, you know, they go to extreme measures to do this. I write in the book about this idea of, um, that became popular in a village in China, uh, phantom third houses. So people who would build a home, uh, parents who would build a home for their son, and they could only afford to, you know, actually furnish and fill out two floors, but they would put a phantom third-story home on it to make it, uh, third story on it to make it look taller from the outside so that matchmakers or anyone tasked with finding their son a potential mate would go, oh, that's a really big house. You know, we'll put him to the top of the list of, uh, of men searching for a wife. And in cases where that doesn't work out, I mean, it's, it's not unheard of for these men to travel to Vietnam and buy a bride. Or worse yet, you know, this, this obviously fuels a market for, for bribe napping from other countries in East Asia that are, are not as wealthy. Um, so the imbalance is something very serious, but the pressure is certainly on both genders, but for very, very different reasons. For women, it's age, um, and for men, it's resources to be able to attract the wife. So that, so what you were describing with the males, I would have predicted, I mean, that's what you would predict from this imbalance that that right. put into place. That's what you would have thought. I would have thought it would be so easy for women to find a husband because there's this imbalance. I would not have predicted that 
because they were the that their families put so much into their education or their plans for career or, or whatever that they would then almost exclude most many of the men because you're above you know you have a job that that pays above what another man can you know can sustain or you know I, I didn't I didn't predict that part of it it's really fascinating I thought the same thing you did when I first started off, <laughs> when, when you know, I was talking to my colleagues who were a bit down because they'd come back from, you know, their hometowns with this fresh layer of pressure. I said, ladies, there's a surplus of men. Are you sure you're not just being lazy? You know, these guys should be sprouting up around you like dandelions. You should each have five boyfriends. And I, I, I kind of got blank stares, and I'm thinking, where are these men? Do they have them all in a hangar somewhere? I mean, because I could, I'd really love to find out where they are and spread them around, right? I know a lot of women who could benefit from this. And then I realized that it, it was all in the geography of it. I mean, geographically, they're in a completely different place, and also socially and from an educational perspective. And the chances of these people, you know, these two populations of, of leftovers ever crossing paths is very slim. And so ultimately, it, it throws, um, you know, as you said, it, it throws your idea of, of supply and demand because the types of men that would be in demand or that the types of men that these women could marry given the tradition of, of hypergamy are actually in, in more limited supply. And on top of it, any woman in China can and would want to marry them, right? Men who are at the top of the game, they could marry someone um, very young and very poor, or they could marry their contemporary. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, but a woman at the top of her game, it, it would you know, it would be frowned upon if she married someone much younger or of a, of a different class, right? Or of a lower class. So right. that's what really throws the market. Do you think that was ever a consideration? So as during the one-child policy, we were talking about that, how, you know, you'd want your son to excel, but if you only had a female child, you'd want that child to excel. Was that, do you think that was ever a consideration to hold them back, thinking, I don't know, forward thinking that there are not going to be as many men out there, we, we're going to, you know, hinder your educational progress or your professional progress? Because of that, do you think that ever trumps, I guess, you know, the, the social part trumps the professional educational part? I Initially, I really don't think it did. I mean, now it's, it's becoming more understood that the education part can get you in trouble. And, you know, I, I have interviewed women whose parents have discouraged them from pursuing a PhD because when you, you're a female PhD in China, you're essentially a third sex. You're not a man. You're not a woman. You're just a PhD. And that means you're, you know, you're, you're far too superior to be married. Um, there are other families that are a bit more benevolent and they'll say, well, you can't get a PhD in aeronautics, but you can get one in sociology because you'll have a more flexible schedule and you won't be so intimidating. I mean, it's, it's really, the hierarchy of it is wacky and it really depends on your parents. Um, I also know, you know, PhD advisors um, in, at universities in China. There's, there's actually one who I introduced for the book. Um, he explained to me that whenever he's got a female PhD student or a, a postdoc candidate, he makes the point of meeting with the family and explaining to her that he's just as interested in helping their daughter to graduate as he is in helping her to find a partner because he understands that, you know, this is, a, this is something that parents are apprehensive about, and he also knows that it makes it harder on women. He also explained that because um, he, he works in the, the field of computer science, because there are, you know, it's, it's a field with traditionally a pretty high concentration of men, but a larger percentage of women that I think you would see in most um, computer science programs in the States, uh, it, has, it is actually a little bit easier 
for these women to find partners while they're in college. So it, you know, it, it's possible that they find a mate while they're getting their PhD or their postdoc because there are men for them to, you know, to choose from. Where it gets tricky is after they graduate because once they're in the workforce, if they, you know, say they start to work for IBM, um, a lot of their peers, the male colleagues, will be married already, and so that pool goes away. But there is that window where higher education, if you're studying a certain field that you know has a, has a high concentration of men, you'll be fine. But if you're getting a PhD, for example, in literature, um, you're going to run into a little bit more trouble. So it, it does play into women's considerations of higher education and, and certainly their parents. So the pressure started long before 25. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I mean, this is why, you know, colleagues at 23 and 24 were already getting trouble. It really just leads up to you officially being a leftover, but you're a partial leftover. And, and you know, I have women who, I, I've met women who, you know, someone you just meet, oh, I, you know, you used to live in China. What did you do there? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm researching a book about leftover women. And they'll say, oh, I'm a leftover. And you look at them and, you know, they're 19 or 20 or 21. And they just like, that because they're interested in, in school and they're studying abroad, that this is probably what they're going to end up being. And it's not like, uh, you know, they might say it like with a bit of, oh, I'm a leftover, a bit of dismay. It, it's not like their life is over. I mean, if, if they were really against, if they were really, you know, uh, frustrated about the situation, they could probably do things to remedy it. But it's, it's just something to mention, you know, from a very young age. But this is where I'm headed because... Um, this is, I have the profile of, of what is usually, what usually ends up being a leftover woman. And it's not a bad thing. I'm just ready and prepared for it. And my parents are already pressuring me and I'm finding creative, resourceful ways to keep them at bay. But it's so sad that just like coming out of the gate, like you've, you've been labeled. <laughs> like all, you've been labeled. I mean, it's not, it's not just China. Um, and Japan for a long time, you were a Christmas cake if you were unmarried after 25. And it was the idea that, you know, like, just after Christmas, um, after your 25th birthday, you know, it's like, it's over. Party's over. It's, you know, move on. Um, and then they, they bumped it up to 31. So they were calling these women um, New Year's noodles. Um, it's just like after your 31st birthday, it's over. I mean, this is not, you know, it's, a, it's not. In Latin America, there's um, some Spanish-speaking countries. You'll get jamona solterona, which means a, a lonely ham. Um, and, you know, that's not also oh, something. That's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need to take a poll on, you know, the most unsavory term. But what I try to argue, I mean, what I do argue in the book is that across the world, in varying degrees, there is, uh, there seems to be a pathological scrutiny of women who are not married by a certain age. Now, of course, that's more acute in some places than in others, but it is true. I mean, as you said at the beginning of our interview in the U.S., maybe after 40 or approaching 40, you start to get concerned. Um, but obviously, in China, it kicks in much sooner. In many parts of East Asia, it does. Um, but I, I really see these women as part of a larger spectrum um, of, you know, a society where women as a whole have gotten more opportunities, a world where women have gotten more opportunities, mm -hmm. they've gotten more access to education. We've seen that's been almost universally true. And as a result, marriage isn't their first priority, right? Marriage is becoming discretionary for a lot of women around the world. And China's a fantastic place to try to understand all of this because it's home to the largest population of women in the world, but it's also a very wealthy and a very poor country at the same time. So you have women whose lives look like those of women, you know, in New York or L.A. or London, um, and then you have women, you know, whose lives look like those of women in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? You, you have, or India, you have both sides of that spectrum. And I really think that if China plays its cards right, it, it, you know, it could set the tone for a lot of developing nations and, and sort of be a model for 
how to engage your women in the workforce because it's done that really well. I mean, workforce participation is part of the reason it's part of China's economic miracle. Um, that really has been key, and, and we see what happens when you don't do that. I mean, Japan is a perfect example. Women in Japan are likely to check out for 13 years after having a child because it's considered a little bit taboo if you're not taking care of your own child. Um, outside, health care is, is frowned upon, and even parents, um, you know, don't usually take care of children. It's got to be their mom. And as a result, you know, Japan is missing a lot of money from its economy that it could otherwise have to made that possible. Um, so China's, you know, it's the perfect diorama for understanding a global shift that started, you know, years before China's economy took off, but that is playing out in really interesting ways there right now. Are there fertility clinics? Are there, you know, so when you do hit later years, have they, what is the, I don't know, the access to fertility or, you know, to freezing your eggs? Like, has, has any of that been explored? Great question. <laughs> so when it comes to egg freezing, um, in order to get your egg frozen as a woman in China, you must be married and you must have an illness that jeopardizes your ability to have children in the future. Otherwise, you collectively freeze your eggs. You cannot. And okay. so a lot of Chinese women are actually coming. That's a law. I mean, you cannot. You cannot freeze your eggs as an unmarried woman in China. You actually have a hard time going to the gynecologist as an unmarried woman in China. You can go. It's not illegal. But you may be, depending on how traditional the, the practice you go to, usually it's a hospital, um, a gynecological hospital, you may be given some flack for, I've written about this as well, you may be given some flack for not being married, and it's sort of gotten to the point where some women might just lie and say, yeah, I am married, so that they can have a gynecological exam. And the idea is, well, why would you need one? You'll be a virgin, you know, if you're not married. And of course you need one, even if you are a virgin, right? <laughs> the things can happen. Um, but no, they don't have access to freezing their eggs. So women do come to us to um, freeze their eggs. There was a Chinese celebrity who came, and it was a very high-profile case of coming here to freeze their eggs because she, you know, wanted that insurance plan. And women who have the means to do it from China are doing it as a backup. Um, and they're doing it at young ages, so, you know, they have that option. But in China, now, despite would the technology... Would that be illegal? No, 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 freezing your eggs here. No, it wouldn't be illegal. Um, I mean, they, they can't really hold you to... Whew, I don't know the intricacies of the law, but I, I certainly know women are doing it, so... I mean, they're your eggs, and you're freezing them in another country. They're freezing them on foreign territory. So right. <laughs> I don't know. What's... Right. They just won't allow you to do it there. That's incredible. Right. You wouldn't be able to sort of ship them back and, and, and have this. You would obviously, if you chose to, you know, try to become pregnant with those eggs, you would have to do it um, in the U.S. You wouldn't be able to do it in China, uh, right. which, which, yeah. Um, and then, sorry, one, one important part of that, <laughs> being a single mom in China um, is also very complicated. So if you have a child out of wedlock, um, you are expected to pay very high fees, compensation fees. These are fines for having a child out of wedlock. Um, and it's also very complicated to raise a child out of wedlock because the child's identity comes through its father. So your, your residence permit comes through your father, which means being able to go to school, being able to access certain health care services is all controlled through this permit that you wouldn't have if your mom is not married to your dad. So it, it is rare, um, and, and they certainly don't make it easy, which um, is that problem. And just trying to discourage, um, because of the one-child policy and whatnot, that's trying to discourage population growth? And not at all. Or... No it's, no, it's more tradition. I mean, now China has a two-child policy. The country's actually desperate for babies. They didn't 
created two-child policy so that women could have greater reproductive freedoms. They did it because they need babies. The birth level, the birth rate is below replacement, and the population is shrinking. They they want babies, and so they um, they promoted this policy. Uh, you know, they, they upped it to a two-child policy. And as reported in the New York Times, um, after, um, after women under the peak years of the one-child policy, after a woman gave birth, many times um, uh, an, uh, a steel IUD, a stainless steel IUD, an uterine device, uterine device, basically birth control, right, um, was forcibly installed in her um, to assure that she wouldn't have another child. And, uh, you know, unlike the IUDs that, that we'd be familiar with, you couldn't just go to your gynecologist and have this tugged out. You needed to have it surgically removed. They purposely made them hard to remove to make sure that the one-child policy wasn't going to be violated. And they've gotten so keen to increase um, population growth that they've offered to surgically remove these IUDs for free um, because they want oh to promote childbearing. So the logic behind not letting unmarried women have children is more of a cultural thing. And it stems from this idea that, you know, a family is a building block of the nation. And, and for them, a family is composed of a mother and father, child or children. Um, and so they don't, I mean, the idea of a woman raising a child on her own, I, I guess, would be considered you know, destabilizing or just not what you do um, in China, right? It's, it's very antithetical to, to Chinese tradition. And that's why it's not allowed. But it's hard to say. I mean, they may be in a rough of enough spot as far as birth birth numbers because the two child policy is now two years old, and the government's predictions for how many babies would be born per year were far greater than the number that were actually born. Um, and what they actually found was that a lot of older moms had a second child, and that increased the number of, of birth complications, but not nearly as many babies as they wanted were born. Um, so maybe in a bid to really increase those numbers, they will make it a little bit easier to, for unmarried women to either freeze eggs or, or um, have a child out of wedlock. But there haven't been any real signs of that yet. I'm just sort of looking into the future of how they may try to deal with, you know, these numbers not being, the number of babies born not being um, up with their standards and what they might do to try to incentivize more births. Roseanne, I'm so upset we're out of time. We have so many more questions. But right now, anyone out there, and there's no one out there who's not absolutely intrigued, absolutely fascinated by this, needs to go out and get this book, Leftover in China, Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower. Roseanne, how does everyone get this book, and how do they find out more about what you're doing? Well, it's uh, anywhere books are sold online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you can get your books. Um, and everything about me is on my website, which is roseannelake.com, R-O-S-E-A-N-N-L-A-K-E.com. Roseanne, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. Lisa, my amazing co-host tonight, this was fascinating. Like, uh, we need to come back on. We need to talk more about this, if you would. I hope you had fun. Everybody out there, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, you have to go out and get Roseanne's book today, immediately, just Hang up and then go right on Amazon to go get this right now. <laughs> it is fascinating. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sharing with us. And I really do mean that I hope you come back again. And everyone, thank you for joining us tonight. And we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Hi, I'm Danny Iowa.
You may know me as an actor, but one of the things that I'm most proud of is my service to this country. In the Army, I saw firsthand how training and discipline instill a value that create great leadership abilities and a can-do spirit. Those same strong values stay with service members when they return to civilian life and enter the workplace. So, remember the highest smart and bet on a vet. To learn more, call 888-44-SALUTE or visit SaluteHeroes.org.